Our reading today is from the book of 2 Samuel, and it's chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement, so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai the Meholathite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them, and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Aya's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had stolen the bodies from the public square at Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan up from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Thanks so much for joining us. There's much that goes on in our world that when we see it, 
our natural inclination is to look away because it's too distressing. We can see a news clip from a war zone or scroll past a news article on rioting in the streets and be aware of what's going on. Yet who among us is brave enough to look closely at some of our world's greatest problems and dwell there for a while, really trying to grasp the full impact of the grinding effects of intergenerational poverty, environmental concerns, racism. Our natural response, of course, is to look away. On the Saturday just gone, I had to teach a seven-hour course that every worker or volunteer with kids has to complete here in SA, which looks at child abuse, raising awareness, helping us to understand its prevalence in institutions and in homes, and seeking to help us to show how we can make a positive difference in children's lives. Because the latest stats show that there's 435 reports per day, every day, to the child abuse report line here in SA. Now, I'm usually a write-off for the evening after teaching that course, forced to see one of society's great evils and not look away. Yet I get to disengage and unwind with a beer with a good friend, then go home and hug my kids just a little tighter and reflect back on my own childhood, which was pretty great. I cannot comprehend what life must be like for survivors. My heart doesn't want to go there. I don't think I'm brave enough. Today's passage, even just to skim over, is uncomfortable, yet to really go there, to understand it and dwell upon it, is quite traumatic. And it works at two levels. Firstly, it's a story of the devastating impact of racial and ethnic injustice. Quite topical, obviously. Secondly, it forces us to consider the problem beneath the problem, human sin and God's wrath against it. Now, I realise that's not the cheeriest of sermon introductions, and unlike normal church, where you're kind of a captive audience, you have the ability to change channels or simply turn off the TV. But I'd encourage you to stick with us. Firstly, because God has seen fit to have this story recorded for us to dwell upon, and you'd have to say it's been intentionally written in a way to confront us. Secondly, I think we are reading it during a cultural moment where in our world we're asking the hard questions of the society that we've created with a desire to build something better out of the ashes of the first six months of 2020. And it's good to take stock of where we are now, where we'd like to be in the future, and then how to get there. And finally, as Christians, we believe that Jesus offers something so much more than a desire for a better day but that he offers real hope and a real and lasting solution. If you're someone who wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, as unexpected as this story may be, I hope you can see us wrestling with real problems as we hold out Jesus as the saviour we all need. So let's get into it. It'd be great to have your Bibles open to 2 Samuel 21. As you turn there, the last four chapters form a bit of a capstone on how the kingdom of God has fared under David's reign. What at first appears like a grab bag of random stuff popped at the end of the book reveals itself to be well-crafted to the careful reader. The very first verse of chapter 21 breaks us away from the strict chronological reading of the events in 2 Samuel, where we read, During the reign of David... There was a famine for three successive years, so David sought the face of the Lord. 
The Lord said, it is on the account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, we don't have recorded for us exactly what Saul did to the Gibeonites. The characters in our story know we don't. But we do know a little about the Gibeonites and how Israel came to swear that they would spare them, verse 2. And it comes from Joshua 9. Long story short, as Israel were given the promised land by God as he judged the inhabitants for their many sins, the Gibeonites deceived Joshua into believing that they had come from afar and wanted to make a covenant with Israel. The covenant was made, the deception soon discovered. So Joshua asks them, why the ruse? The Gibeonites said that they knew God had given them the land. They feared them and came up with a plot to survive. And they also were not amongst the inhabitants of the land that banded together to fight against Israel. So while a little miffed, Joshua makes them woodcutters and water carriers, but instructs the people not to harm them, as it's important enough to Joshua to keep his oath, lest they displease God. That part of the story we do know. Exactly what Saul did later on, we don't but we do know he tried to annihilate them. And it's on this basis that God brings a three-year famine upon his own people because of this injustice. We're not told much about the famine here, but we know how they work. There's not enough food for parents to feed their kids. Often the powerful survive while the weak do not. It's bad. It may raise all sorts of questions for us about how is it fair that future generations suffer for the sins of the previous But again, we know that's how the world works. And this is God disciplining his own people because of his passion for justice. I suspect it's made worse by the fact that God's anointed king at the time, Saul, did this, which brings God's name into disrepute too. So David summons the Gibeonites and asks, verse 3, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? Atonement there is a biblical concept which conveys a cluster of ideas, making payment to sufficiently cover over an offence or injury, and in doing so, reconciling two parties that are estranged. David wants to make atonement, we're told, so that the Gibeonites will bless the Lord's inheritance. I think that is an intentional harking back to God's covenant with Abraham, which defines the whole biblical storyline from the first book of the Bible to the last, where God, as he brings blessing to every tribe and nation on earth, says to his people at the time Abraham's family that he's going to make them into a great nation. And he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. The Gibeonites, even via deception, have been wise enough to fear God and not go to war against him, and in doing so, they secure their future. David seeks atonement with them here, so they might bless Israel, and in doing so, share in the blessings of God's promises. Yet, we're jolted out of this feel-good moment by what the Gibeonites then ask for in verses 4 to 6. Seven of Saul's male children are to be executed, and their bodies exposed on the hill at Saul's hometown of Gibeah. We're not told this is God's plan or what he thinks of it, yet the Gibeonites clearly think this is justice and propose to do it before the Lord. Yet our repulsion at this idea is compounded, as King David says, I will give them to you. 
We, of course, struggle with this idea, and I'd be worried if you didn't. But as sophisticated and as enlightened as we consider ourselves, if we'd witnessed genocide at the hands of Saul, our kids killed horribly, our communities massacred, and I was a survivor, I don't want to pretend that you wouldn't catch me wanting vengeance at points. Yet, there's no winners in this. There's no easy answers. We just see David upholding his oath he made concerning Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth. I knew I was going to struggle with that one. <laughs> Which is really a contrast to the oath-breaker Saul. But to dwell there even for a moment and to step out of the story in the Bible mode that we sometimes read it and actually go there to that hill as seven young people are executed, their bodies left exposed for the birds and wild beasts to devour is horrendous. Verse 9 is a heavy read. He handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. So much horror as a pitiful famine harvest begins. And just when we want to tap out and look away, lands verse 10. Rizpah, daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the body, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. It's a horrific scene beyond the grittiest HBO drama of a mum of two of the young men killed staying there day after day watching her children's bodies decompose for months as she keeps the birds and wild animals away. Quite literally, hell on earth. Then as the months pass, David hears of this mother's devotion and he gathers up not only Saul and Jonathan's bones, but also the bones of the seven young men and gives them a proper burial. In a chapter where we're left to wonder what God makes of the Gibeonites' request for the execution and of David's compliance, I think it's worth pointing out that God didn't answer David's prayer for the land when the men were killed. God answered David's prayer when he showed humbleness and a contrite heart. In response to God's rebuke about Bathsheba and Uriah years earlier, David penned Psalm 51. And it seems David had remembered that lesson here amidst this horrifying story. Let me read to you verses 14 to 17, which I think illustrate the point that David had learned, but also teaches us something of God's heart amidst a story which raises so many questions for us. As David says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. O God, you are God, my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it, and you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And in this capstone to David's life in chapters 21 to 24, that's exactly what we have a record of in the next chapter a great outpouring of praise from David. So have a read of the rest of chapter 21 and 22 tonight. Cam will touch on chapter 22 next week. Yet for now, I'd summarise the main point of the rest of this chapter as 
stand against God's anointed king and you'll lose. And the next chapter, chapter 22, I think functions to help us see that behind the greatness of David's kingship overall stands the God of all power and all glory. Honour and praise belong to him, not David. But for now, I want to help us draw out a few things from this most confronting of chapters. What are we to make of it? Firstly, like I said a few weeks back, in another difficult passage, I want to urge you not to feel the need to resolve neatly all the problems that passages like this raise for us. I think a great deal of the learning God has in mind for us comes from wrestling with such challenging stories. A lot of people have suffered here, first in the famine from Saul's sin. The Gibeonites had suffered greatly, and generations later their descendants the survivors of this attempted genocide, suffer enormously and in an ongoing way from Saul's sin. As David and the Gibeonite spokesmen try to work out a way forward to atone for the sins of Saul, they inflict great suffering on Saul's descendants. The mother's pain here is heart-wrenching. Sin, in all of its complexity, operates in two directions. Vertically, between us and God, And our world's biggest problem is God's wrath against it. As Malcolm put it so well last week in a great sermon, I thought, God simply doesn't see our sin against him as we do. It's not a minor infringement of some arbitrary list of rules. It's a full-blown rebellion against the maker of heaven and earth. But that vertical sin against God is so often tied up with the horizontal sins we commit against one another. We see the interplay between both in this horrific story. And as we saw a few weeks back, we should hate sin more than we do and realise there are no simple solutions to ongoing and systemic sin that spans generations. It's complicated. I can't improve on what I read from John Woodhouse this week, so here's what I think is a great quote. All of this, in some way, is a consequence of Saul's sin. We do not understand all the connections. It's complicated. But God has not so arranged the world that only the person who suffers when someone sins is the sinner. Others get hurt also. Perhaps we wish it were otherwise, but it's not. This is a reality we live with every day. Indeed, it's difficult to think of a sin that does not in some way hurt others. Of course, we are all sinners and we are not in a position to complain that it is unjust for us to suffer because of the sins of someone else. What about those who suffer because of our sins? Take what we've seen today and apply it to the issue of racism, for example. And I'm not wanting to get into the whole situation in America because it's such a tangled mess when you look at it closely. But let's talk about us. I hope we can all agree that racism and its consequences are terrible and they are complex. I don't want to be the white guy in Australia offering simple solutions to complex issues of sin that I've never been on the receiving end of. But I do think dwelling in the pain of a story like today's from 2 Samuel 21 gives us a window into appreciating the pain and complexity of such issues and such powerful sins. It does us good to see the problems of our world, engage with them emotionally, and dwell for a bit in the immense sadness of it all, trying to fight our temptation to simply look away. 
Perhaps the most common objection to doing so as we think about the colonial history of Australia and the many atrocities committed against the Aboriginal people is to simply say, but I wasn't there, I'm not to blame. Yet we as Christians should know better than anyone that sin is complex and many still suffer enormously today. Our passage from 2 Samuel shows us God is far more committed to writing injustice than even our most vocal justice advocates. The Gibeonites tricked Joshua into a treaty with them, yet Joshua upheld his oath of protection for them even after he knew. God disciplined the whole nation of Israel for Saul's sin in breaking that oath and trying to annihilate them. Then David, whom Saul spent most of his life trying to kill, probably had more excuse than most to say, but I wasn't there. Yet he doesn't. He listened. He did what was asked of him, as messy and as problematic as it is. And he also cared for the condemned and showed dignity to Saul, Jonathan and the seven who lost their lives as two humans tried to bring about atonement for past sins. We live in a world that has largely declared itself above a God of judgment and retributive justice and have ushered him to the sidelines. Yet without a God committed to justice, we're largely left to ourselves to simply finger point, blaming others, blaming politicians, venting outrage to no one in particular in cyberspace. Unwilling to embrace a more complex and biblical perspective that we're all part of the sin problem first against God, then against each other. Unwilling to acknowledge that true atonement, both vertical with God and horizontally with our fellow man, comes at a great cost. Thinking horizontally on an issue like racism, one of my favourite all-time preachers has quite passionately argued that if Aboriginal elders in Australia asked us to leave, Christians should. Now, theologically and pragmatically, I'm not quite there with him, and I suspect few of us are. Yet it was this passage, this week, that made me realise one argument for that is that true atonement is costly, and we follow a God who doesn't let us overlook injustice, even if it was long ago. As someone who has had a bit longer to dwell on the sadness of the effects of sin in our world this week, this passage made me appreciate from another angle just how much God has done for us in Jesus as he atoned for our sin on the cross. As Christians, we are always in danger of intellectualising words like atonement and uh, considering the enormous cost of the cross as little as we can. But you can't miss the connection between today's story of a mother distressed and in anguish as her sons were executed with their bodies exposed for all to see to make atonement. With the great story of Jesus, who a thousand years later was executed on another hill with his earthly mother looking up as his heavenly father looked down upon his son who brought atonement between God and humanity. In God's kindness, Jesus did not have his bones broken. Jesus' body was not left exposed, but was treated with dignity and laid in a tomb. And he did not see decay, but with a mighty work of God's great power was raised to life again to show us that death has been conquered and sin has been atoned for. For each person who places their trust in Jesus. 
Romans 5, 6 to 11 reminds us, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And the great news is God is reconciling people to himself from every tribe, tongue and nation for all who turn to Jesus and giving us a place in his eternal kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth without the incredibly sad and devastating effects of sin. There'll be people from the Aboriginal tribes there who have turned to Jesus, from the clans of Scotland who love Jesus, Asian believers who trust in Jesus, followers of Jesus from the Wolof tribes of Senegal who hear of Jesus and repent, all brought in to a kingdom of eternal justice where the last will be first, where those who have been faithful with a little will receive a whole lot more. Come, Lord Jesus, come.